Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Tamara Mosher Kutzer, an immigration lawyer in Ottawa, who is quite prolific on Twitter uh, for and possibly has the most tweets related to Canadian immigration. I guess I should say X at the end of 2023. On today's episode, we do a review of the year, what the biggest stories were in Canadian immigration, our favorite developments, our least favorite developments. We review our predictions from last year and also make predictions for 2024. Um, As far as any housekeeping goes, we have started posting the videos of these recordings on YouTube. So if you use YouTube and you want to watch these podcasts instead of just listening to it, feel free to subscribe there. And uh, once again, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. I don't even know where we should start. I guess we can start with our predictions from last year. Our abysmal predictions. Our abysmal predictions. Well, I don't think we were as bad as you guys think we were. We were like, um, well, you did get something right, which was your prediction. Something would happen to the caregiver program. I, I got the open work permit for family class. Yeah. Which was a, ho- a hope and a dream. I got so, the lifting of yeah. the uh, visa requirements for a bunch of South American countries, right? Yeah. Which was only because I had one, like seen that there was a briefing note on it. Yeah. Not the right one. Bolivia was yeah. not on that list. I don't think any yeah. of them were actually the right ones, but you did get the fact of it. Yeah. Right? Philippines yeah. was 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 a, was a weird one, right? Um, you know what we kind of got both right and wrong uh, is that we, I mean, we knew that category based draws were going to start this year, but we both we kind of all predicted that it would be more points for Canadian work experience or education, and we didn't really predict 
that, and this was one of my top things for 2023, the introduction of category-based draws. I don't, we didn't predict that there would be these super narrow occupations or francophone um, categories. And no, and no location and no yeah, reweighing. And no yeah. reweighing. Um, and I actually think, so like as far as our, you know, the top stories of 2023, actually let's finish before we get into category-based draws, what we got right and wrong last time. We <laughs> predicted <laughs> all we wrongly wrong. that uh, there would be new people allowed to invite parents and grandparents. Yeah, we said people will explode if they do not, do not open. And I guess that has, I mean, we were right in the fact that people, well, I don't know if people haven't exploded. I think- Oh, people, people exploded. Can... People are okay. really upset. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I, I actually I, can't believe they went back to that same pool for a third time. Like, no, that's insane. Yeah, insane. And gross. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like I'm gross. Yeah. The other one that we got wrong is the municipal nominee program continues to not exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We will see but it in election twenty twenty four. Yeah, they keep bringing it up. Um, it's evidently the most complicated. Must be the most complicated program to create in history for the amount of election campaigns around it. Yeah. I'm going to go back to the caregivers for a second, because to me, this program has pretty much been canceled for years. They just keep having it on the books and keep pretending that it's an actual viable program. It's now officially going to expire. Um, and uh, they'll just like let it die quietly. So, um, but I feel like this whole maneuver to like let it sit there on the books as a, as an actual program. But what I am seeing right now is that they're actually starting to decide some of these long pending applications and we're getting a lot of refusals. And so there are a lot of cases now, I think that we're gonna start seeing in federal court. Um, I've got a few, Lev I know has a, has one, you know, and so um, hopefully some of them will get settled. But Are they around like people who applied three or four years ago and the kids are now too old? Like, is that sort of where the grounds of refusal are coming from? Well, it's like you applied and then your job, like what they actually did is that they wrote to some of the employers and said, do you still want this caregiver? And if the employer didn't respond or said no, then they would go back and say, you know, there's issues around genuineness of the job offer. And again, I mentioned the absurdity of this, which is that you needed a job offer if you didn't yet have your two years of work experience, but once you actually have the job offer, you would come in and get an employer open work permit. So yeah. it's not like you were even going to be tied to that employer. So it's insane to me that like, oh, that's, that employer doesn't want you anymore and therefore you no longer have a basis for this application. Doesn't matter that there'd be like dozens of other employers who would happily pick this up. Now you've got this person who might be still overseas who has to scramble to find a new job offer so that they can come and get an open permit again another year later. So that was, was one of the problems. Wasn't the other issue like in April, they realized that there was a mistake or unintended wording in the program where if you worked for companies that provide like home support, like home old folks homes, that you would qualify for the program and they realized that wasn't what they wanted. So they did these weird retrospective ministerial instructions saying that no, it can't be a business. And I'm, you know, consulted with a few people who got these procedural fairness letters that are like, hey, 
We know you like working in your current job, but if you want to qualify for this program, we've kind of changed the rules retrospectively, and you're going to have to quit your company and go find uh, employment elsewhere, which is crazy. Even though me. you've been working as a home support worker and providing care to dozens of elders in various homes. In a very much needed sector where we have major labor <laughs> shortages. And, yeah. And I mean, really, um, as I've been saying all along, the home support worker pilot made no sense from the beginning because what elder person can wait two years for the worker to arrive? And so the idea mm -hmm. of a single employer who would just be an agent and would distribute the worker to various locations, that made a ton of sense. And so some people figured like this is a way of making this viable. But then they were like, no, we didn't mean a single employer that would use multiple. We meant a single employer, meaning a single household. And so have have you heard what their rationale is for why they don't like the model of just the business where someone's working for many people, say, at an old folks home? Well, I mean, if it's going back to the same reasons that they didn't like this way back when I started doing advocacy on the caregiver sector is that they assume that there's fraud. They don't like working with third parties. They assume that it's like, and again, they can use all sorts of words like human trafficking, but at the same time, like they could also just manage that and make sure that it's not an abusive employment situation. Yeah. Make sure that it's a credible um, employer the same way that they would in any other setting. But instead they've just like, no, we're not in this business. We don't want to enable third party employers. But um, again, I, I think that in a sector like home support work, it actually makes more sense, especially when you're dealing with an elder population where you might not have an employer that's around for the full two year duration. But the opposite, even with, for people with kids, like there's a finite number of years you need that support. Totally. And some people just want before school care and some want after school care. Someone want half day, you know, someone wants like, fill in care, you know, and so a lot of people don't want to pay a full-time salary. They just want to have flexible care and that when their caregiver gets sick, that doesn't mean they have to take a day off of work. They want to have somebody that they can just be like, can you, can you please replace this person for today? And so I actually think that the model that they're working for, one employer, one worker, actually doesn't work for the workers. It doesn't work for the employers, yeah. um, but they're just fixed. They're rigid about this. Maybe they'll start um, trying to position the IEC more as the gap filler with all these new IEC programs Maybe. as the, the new caregiver. Like, I don't know, like, this is tangential, but do you see Biden is changing the rules in the U.S. to mirror what we had, but like, I don't know, 10 years ago, that you have to pay minimum so wage to <laughs> caregivers in the States now or soon? Oh my God. Interesting. So as far as the year in review, you know, when I went back and listened to last year's episode, I'd say there was a there was a hint then of like optimism for 2023. And the sentiment now, like I feel like the past year has been much more, I feel like going into 2024, I have a more negative outlook on the future of immigration than I had in 2022 going into 2023. Um, and there's so many examples to draw on, but I, before getting into them and what I'd consider the top stories of 2023, do you share that sentiment? I like, I think so. I, I just, I thought, so all these hopes and dreams of TR to PR and CC only and, and 
student stream permanent residents. Like, I thought that was pie in the sky. I thought those were COVID measures and we weren't going to see that. But I did think we were going to see a return to kind of more normal express entry draws and viable options for people who had been working here for a few years and who are educated and who should be able to. And like, and I have no pathway to permanent residence for PhDs who have been working here for multiple mm -hmm. years. Yeah. Um, me, I have utterly lost faith in programs. Like, <laughs> uh, I feel like the policy stuff that's coming out, I'm always like, what? We're doing what? Why? How does that make sense? Um, I just don't understand. I don't understand what the basic guiding principles are of, of the policy. Um, and I don't feel like any of it is internally coherent or consistent. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm flummoxed um, every time something comes through and I don't feel like there's any intent, there's any um, real meaningful effort to make it all make sense as a whole. Um, yeah, I, I, also... I, I think that's because of how they're developing it. The yeah. left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, even oh, though they're right. changing how IRCC is structured. Now policy is supposed to be with operations so that there is more cohesiveness. But it like even though policy is with operations, maybe that'll be just like the student stream. So they don't understand that this doesn't work with the permanent residence stream. And there's there seems to be a major disconnect with how everything works together. Yeah, yeah but I think exactly. they, even beyond like the immediate policy, like I don't think at the end of 2022, I could not picture, you know, Sean Fraser getting up to the microphones and talking or comparing, um, you know, post-secondary institutions in Canada to puppy mills, which he did yesterday. Or, yeah, well, new immigration minister, Mark Miller. Sean, like, and I don't think it's even just a change in who the immigration minister was. I think that the past year, and this would probably be my top story in Canadian immigration is the huge shift in public sentiment that's being reflected at the political level in terms of whether the numbers of international students is too high and whether the level of permanent residence is too high. Yeah, Rudy Kisher talked about this yesterday, uh, one of our colleagues out here in Vancouver, about even public opinion about immigration is really different now. And, um, you know, this is always like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world in a broader way, um, you know, and I think that um, people, I mean, people's openness, I think Canada has always been very unique in having a very, relatively speaking, open perspective to immigration. I think people are making much more fear-based decisions now than they ever have before. Um, I have a fairly negative and pessimistic attitude as to how that is impacting on program policy. From a litigation standpoint, I feel like there's just been a huge rise in, you know, cases involving organized criminality, human rights violations, terrorism. Like, I feel like, um, again, that focus on, like, keeping the bad people out. Who are those bad people? How much resources yeah. are being spent on surveillance and all of that thing, you know, deferring too much to computers and algorithms and stuff like that and less about compassion. And, you know, um, yes, I understand program integrity is important. Uh, but again, I think that the balance is tipped way too far in favor of that and much less in terms of common sense pr principles. What do we stand for? What does this all mean to us as a country? Yeah, I feel like it even goes, I mean, I think it goes beyond even just the integrity into like, you know, media stories about, you know, 
basically like Canada relying on population growth for GDP, GDP per capita going down, reports of students basically living on the streets, um, housing, you know, the, like a lot of comments now, are, oh, these immigrants are coming here, where are they going to live? And... Whereas two years ago, it was like, how do we get the best and the brightest from all around the world? Yeah. You know? The same people, you know? But but even this year, like we with the digital nomad strategy, like let's bring in 10,000 people who won't actually work for yeah. Canadian employers. We're not going to think about where they're going to live. Where are the students going to live? Like these 10,000 people, we don't care about them. But the, like... Yeah, like and even that, well, and... Yeah, there were also like the media stories of did the government kind of lose control? Like there were those, what was a couple months ago where they were saying StatsCan was undercounting the number of temporary residents. Yeah, the public policy that leaked to the globe, which to me suggests dissatisfaction at IRCC, where they bulk approved essentially all old temporary resident visa applications, which apparently has led to an increase in asylum claims, according to some people. Like there's just... There's been this combination of a narrative that the government has lost control mm. and that numbers are too high. And another thing that, that's on top of all of this is in terms of predictability of processing, like there is none, um, but also the politicization of immigration. So this is what you can expect based on your passport being from one of these 20 countries. If you hold a passport from China, Iran, Israel, um, you know, add a few more that I haven't, that are coming to mind, then you're going to face months and months and months of uncertain scrutiny, extra forms, um, uncertainty, inability to travel, you know, and, um, and that's a very difficult position to be in as an advisor of clients. I don't know what's going on. Yes, maybe you can bring federal court action, but I don't know what that's going to bring for you, what to, how to anticipate what this is going to mean. Um, yeah, it's just an uncomfortable time. Well, and compounding on that are the huge federal court delays. So for a study permit refusal, essentially, if the Department of Justice doesn't quickly consent, the student is going to run into deferral issues at the university because it might take a year to get a hearing and by that time, they may be out of deferrals. And also you can get a, I mean, and I think that people are finding remedies to this. You can get a consent and then it can go back for redetermination and then just get stuck there for ages and ages. So now people are really getting like they're building into their settlement uh, terms that enable it to be redetermined on a timeline. But even then we're getting a ton of pushback. Well, like my understanding is that the the number of applications, particularly mandamus applications that they're seeing is is just exponential. Like I heard a comment from the DOJ lawyer at a CPD I attended recently, and she ba she was basically like, mm, some of you seem to be advising a lot of people to DIY these applications themselves. And we're seeing a lot of that. Um, and she was basically saying, like, can you stop? <laughs> Yeah, there's YouTube channels that guide people on uh, how to do mandamus. And part of what's frustrating is a lot of them just like the guidance seems to be just file, but never do an applicant's record and see what happens. And I get approached by people who want to do mandamus the day after they file because they saw a YouTube video somewhere which says, 
hey, this might help make it faster. Um, but like on the, the other the hand, side like of web that forms is, every day. Yeah, the other side of that is what Deanna was talking about, which is that there are these huge delays for some people. And the one that's the big mystery to me, like I can get it for Iran. Um, it's something that we actually like didn't talk about last year, but which happened right towards the end of the year. And I think snuck under the radar was um, Marco Mendicino designating the Islamic Republic of Iran as being a government that engages in terrorism and systemic human rights violations. The first designation in like 20 years. And so there was that CBC article that 20,000 people uh, had to have enhanced security background checks to determine if they were a senior member of the Iranian public service. So, but at least there you kind of like, okay, I at least know what they're looking for. With China, I have no idea what they're looking for in terms of these enhanced background checks. I assume it has to do with the media reports about underground police stations, possibly espionage based on some of the refusals. But those espionage cases, you know, there's an obvious link in someone's application to prior military history that relates to like People's Liberation Army, 3PLA or something. A lot of the Chinese cases, there's just no, there doesn't seem to be any rationale for why there is this enhanced background screening. Yeah. Well, a long a time ago, it. I saw one where it was like the parent or even the step parent maybe had involvement. Yeah. And that's what, that's what was the cause of the delay. Some of and it was like a I'm study saying, permit. Yeah. There are people who have worked in government hospitals and that in that constitutes working for the government of China. And so they're after sending them that form. How many, how many, how many ranks are there between you and the minister? They're having to figure out the <laughs> Well, so, and as an example like, of how they do these proxy inadmissibility assessments, I had a judicial review, which was settled, um, mainly for procedural fairness reasons, in which they found that someone who worked in a municipal government, this in part was the refusal, but part of the GCMS notes was that someone who worked in part as an ambulance driver uh, for a municipal government in the Syrian civil war was providing care to rebels and that this was facilitating subversion because they were providing medical assistance to the rebels. Therefore, by proxy, he was a member of the rebel organization. So some of the, you know, going back to what you said, Deanna, like the integrity um, provision seemed to be very, getting much more broadly interpreted. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's hard when, I mean, those ones too, when people are living in a conflict zone, you know, you need to live in that zone, you know, if you, yeah. uh, you don't get to choose uh, who you offer your care to. It's not. Yeah. And so, so the, and the, I'm like, who's it, taking a resume? Like, I'm not, before yeah, I provide you care, I'd like, I'd like to have your employment history, please. Yeah. I just want to make the, sure that nobody considers me complicit. <laughs> and the other one coming down the pipe is, um, and I don't think they've developed the regs yet for it, is the inadmissibility due to sanctions. And it has the potential to be so broad because the, the inadmissibility is if Canada or an international organization that Canada is part of has sanctioned a foreign government company or person, they're also inadmissible. Um, and so the potential, like just the delays in trying to figure out if someone's on a list, which companies are on the list, um, that's all still coming down the pipe. Going back to category-based draws, what are your thoughts? 
I feel like this is the the big shift in how Canada's largest immigration program works. Do you think it's been implemented successfully? Is this fair, unfair, good, bad? Well, okay. So first of all, in the way it's been implemented because of a number of technical glitches, it actually hasn't really been implemented. There have been some category draws, but very, very few. Um, so they will represent a very small percentage from 2023 uh, in terms of who was drawn. There will be, I think, more in 2024. I don't think they're going to revisit the occupation list anytime soon. I think they're going to be happy with that. And like I said, it's hugely problematic because we have all these people who who should be getting PR, but we have no pathway and the provinces haven't stepped in, at least Ontario hasn't stepped in uh, with a good pathway because Ontario, I don't know how much you guys follow Ontario, but Ontario is doing targeted draws um, for the employers and their occupation list pretty much mirrors the federal government <laughs> list. So, I was going to ask that. In Ontario, there doesn't seem to be OIMP general draws because that just... There, uh, the last one was in March of 2022. Oh so what do people do out one. there? Like, is it just, is it like, I mean, I feel like in BC, it's hard to get nominated now than it used to be, but there are still it's general draws. Uh, like I've had people, like I said, I have multiple PhDs who have been working in Canada for multiple years for the employer in Ontario, and we have no pathway because they're over 45 um, and their language skills aren't great. Um, so like, we have no pathway. Now, Ontario has said that they will be reopening general draws in 2024, but we have like a year and a half of people now who have had no pathway to permanent residence. So you you have a backup of all those people. And so now, of course, those people. Um, for... Yeah. Can you guys speak to the glitches that are happening with the occupation based draws? I'm not. So there were technical glitches on like on the back end on IRCC side. Uh, I like I don't know what they related to, um, but they said that those glitches directly resulted in an issue with them doing the category specific draws. Mm -hmm. And then there was a side. Well, there have been a few. <laughs> side issues but the most recent issue that's been impacting for the last two months and that was just a month and a half and it was just fixed had to do with the postal code of dependents over 18 in Canada and so um so people couldn't submit applications okay. and so they stopped yeah, yeah, yeah. doing draws because because there was a whole category of people who couldn't submit applications <laughs> so there were no draws for like I don't know a month or so two months two months Wow. This may be controversial. I am not a fan of the francophone draws. I don't, you know, it's not to say that I'm not a fan of francophones, but I think when weighing, uh, you know, they've made it a zero-sum game, and this kind of gets into the future by freezing immigration levels. And I, I understand the social and cultural benefits, I guess, of francophone migration. But when that's coming at the expense of like, say, measuring how many years someone has been in Canada or whether, well, whether they're even in Canada because the, the lack of prioritization of Canadian experience uh, class draws in favor of say, like someone who went to school in Canada and has worked in Canada, in my opinion, should be prioritized in express entry over someone overseas who happens to speak French. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that sounds sound to me.
And that kind of gets into like our future, like where the future is and the freezing of immigration levels in the levels plan is probably going to, I did it like a little tweet X, whatever it's called, storm on this, where like the levels plan this year calls for this freezing of immigration, but no, they're like, no change in intake. Not only that, like it doesn't reflect, oh, this was something we didn't predict, I guess, was, and one of the big stories of the year was the closure of Roxham Road and the uh, the commitment to uh, take in, well, at the time they had worded it as 15,000 humanitarian migrants from Central America, which turned into 4,000 foreign workers and 11,000 migrants from Central America under a family reunification stream. That's not budgeted for in the new plan. The Wager refugee program, if that still exists, is not budgeted for, or not budgeted for, but like tallied in the new plan. And it just feels like the future because of this is going to be, you have this future of immigration where they're freezing immigration levels. They don't seem to have adjusted numbers for all these new programs that they announced. But they, and while freezing immigration, they are going to increase Francophone migration, which just seems like it's going to get harder and harder for everyone else. But like, so tied into that, so in terms of like things that we liked for, for 2023, one of the programs, the new work permit exemptions that I, I like, not because it's a good program, but because... It just makes it easier to bring people in on work permits that are LMIA exempt is the new the expansion of the Francophone mobility program to allow for moderate French speakers with like tier five speaking and listening. Yeah. And for my me, goal like, is I, to be I'm Francophone like, in a few years under our revised definitions of what it means to be Francophone. So I'm super interested by like by the fact that this program, this new revised Francophone uh, mobility, it says, okay, you're good with moderate French language skills, which is CLB5. But then uh, uh, on the flip side of this, you have all these work permit refusals for foreign workers who are showing CLB5 because they're mm. determined not to have sufficient language skills. And I find that a very interesting oh, juxtaposition. A, yeah. I see. You mean on where like their IELTS are five? So it's like, oh, you can't do this job safely. Yeah. There's I, an exemption for CLB. Yeah. I also wonder how many of those who are coming from the African continent are being refused on the basis of overstay risk. Like I would just, I would love to run metrics on all this stuff. Yes, you speak great French. However, we think because you have the better standard of living here in Canada than you will when you can't regularize your status as a permanent resident in Canada because there's no room for you. <laughs> you yeah. will not go back to your country of origin. Like there's just all these idiosyncrasies buried in this. Uh, this Unless you happen to apply for your TRV before January 16th, <laughs> in which case that didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I also wonder how they're going to like, if there's going to need to be changes to the LMIA program to support permanent residence stream when permanent residence becomes out of reach because of uh, how narrow points are. Like there's just all these disconnects. Mm -hmm. But that's like, that's always been the case, right? Like back in 2018, when LMIA processing times were six months, which they now are again, um, oh. because everybody back then needed the LMIA for the extra 200 points, then it 
like then processing times went down because people didn't get the 200 points anymore. They got 50 points. So there were less people applying for the LMIAs, but now the people need 50 points. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they're the, and everybody needs to extend their work permits because they haven't been able to get permanent residence. So I am doing second and third LMIAs for people uh, mm -hmm. under the permanent stream because I'm like, well, this is the goal, but unfortunately you've made it unattainable. So yeah. Yeah. When we can, we will. Yeah, and I don't see, I mean, at least until 2026, unless they change their plan, any of these issues resolving. Um, what I'm hoping for, so that we have the innovation stream that doesn't exist except by There's name. still 20 days. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. There's still 20 days just because they're doing, I think, like this round the table or I don't know, all the MPs are seem to be living in the House of Commons arguing about climate change. There's still 20 <laughs> odd days. Oh, my goodness. You're such an optimist. <laughs> so if they can come up with like, I think the innovation stream could be a hole to fill like the facility, kind of like the facilitated processing for Quebec, like they could make a list. In theory, they could make a list of occupations that are LMIA exempt, like, for example, physicians, which we had heard rumors earlier this year that there might be an LMIA exemption for physicians coming um, and then and then nothing. So, yeah, nurses. Yeah. Yeah. So are we on most like, favorite development that we're supposed to be doing right now? Favorite development. I don't know what we were on. We kind of covered a whole bunch of uh, topics. Year well, in review. We were just year in review that. with yeah. a little bit into the future. What was your yeah. favorite development? Um, I have uh, my favorite developments, I would say, are, um, I, I sort of have two. I just, I, I like everything that the board has been doing. They've been doing really good stuff. I think that in terms of the, the efficiency of proceedings before the board and their, um, I feel like they're working with council in a productive way to make their proceedings work well. So yay to them. I wish that um, some of that would rub off on federal court proceedings because um, there's that. Um, this is sort of, I'm a bit ironic about this, but CBSA has put forward, like I, I, I said this last year that the, the, the IRB was doing much more like advanced understanding of what how trauma works and how credibility findings work and all this kind of stuff and um i just i keep waiting for that to actually trickle down to ircc ircc has some policy but i still don't think that they understand how people like on the agency determination side of things how people actually react in situations of a big challenge CBSA has now put forward their gender-based guidelines. Um, and But I think in order for those to have any actual meaning, there has to be some plan for implementation. And it's, it's I think, a little bit short-sighted to think that that is just about gender-based guidelines. I think that there has to be just a different approach to dealing with uh, people who have suffered real hardship or risk yeah. at ports of entry. I think there needs to be a paradigm shift um, and some understanding of, of, of trauma and harm, uh, and, and all that. So anyways, I think that it's a, it's a nice 
it's a favorite development in the sense that they are now trying to at least align, but I just wanted to see that it's, it's not just lip service. That's a good one. My favorite development would have been Mason, the Supreme Court decision. That's we had a whole podcast case. on it. That's yeah. favorite case, favorite development. Um, my favorite case I've, for... We had a whole podcast on it. If it had gone the other way, I would have just lost so much faith in like the country Sorry. almost. If the government, like, and if it had gone the other way, it would be that the government could deport people who would or may engage in violence that may endanger the safety of Canadians without a, uh, without a conviction. I'm surprised that it didn't, like, the government's position didn't get more coverage. Um, I was also surprised that, like, there was a federal court decision two weeks ago where uh, Madam Justice McDonald ruled that it was a decision by the IRB that membership in the Palestinian Authority rendered someone inadmissible to Canada. I'm surprised that didn't get more media coverage that the government was even, you know, given the current events that they were taking that position. But that would be, so Mason would be my favorite. Can I add a second one? Yeah. Okay, so like I had, like I, I had said earlier, I, I had started making a list in in, in advance of our, our call. Um, and so I had my prediction from last year as one of my favorite things that they were allowing family class applicants to apply for the work permit. But then, of course, like yesterday, the day before, they they changed it. <laughs> so they're still allowed to apply. <laughs> but but now they have to be physically in present in Canada at the time of decision on the work permit instead of at the time of application, which essentially holds everybody hostage in Canada because now they can't leave until a decision is made on their work permit. And there's no processing mm -hmm. times, like no known processing times. So apply and now stay and can't leave and eventually you'll get a work permit. And yeah, but we don't know when. The other thing I found weird with yesterday's announcement was that you have to be eligible for restoration at the time of the decision, if I'm reading it correctly. And like, if work permit processing times take six months and to be eligible for restoration, you have to be within 90 days. How can any be approved? Well, you have to be know, in I, status or like... It, it or requires, eligible for restoration. But if yeah. you're eligible for restoration at the time of application, okay, that's one thing. Eligible for restoration at the time of decision, it, unless they drop processing times, they would all be refused. I don't think I'm, I caught this, this policy announcement yesterday. <laughs> it was the a, same one that said that students now need to meet LICO? No, no that, this was uh, a program delivery update on the on this uh, spousal open work permit policy it was the uh, PDU I think it came out yesterday and I like I I don't know if the person who drafted it just didn't understand that it could take 130 plus days to get the work permit right like no but they're committed to bringing that down well to 120 <laughs> days yeah oh my right. goodness yeah, no, I think that there this this idea that like, but yeah, you're stuck, but that's that's great. That's where you want to be anyways, right? <laughs> you know. So. Well, that's the whole landing portal. Yeah, NPR yeah, cards. exactly. Yeah, I don't think that that's something that that you would get a lot of um, sympathy for. You know, like um, because at the end of your permanent residence processing, when you've just finally been approved, there doesn't seem to be a lot of sympathy for the fact that you can't travel for this big window of time. And then I, you have I'm to wait so for a PR card. I know. I'm so surprised nobody's really tried challenging that on mobility rights grounds, you know, constitutionally. Because, like, 
I mean, again, who's going to fund that? Who's going to, and by the time that you've got your challenge off the ground, it's moot because now you have your card. Yeah. And, kind of stuff, but and there's like, always the PRTD. I know, but honestly, <laughs> that is just so outrageous. And it's, and how many times do you get asked that question? Okay, I just got this. Can I travel? And the answer, no matter how well you write it up, it's going to involve a phone call and a personalized answer based on the circumstances of your client's case. Like it's a major bugaboo. Yeah. I had somebody, we are, we were five months for issuance of the COPR and then May till October until she actually got her PR card. So she was 10 months before she was able to travel. Like, it's it's insane. And family members die overseas. They get sick. You know, things happen in people's lives. Like, it's not just an inconvenience. It's a problem. Yeah, I don't understand why. You're right. Like, there isn't more. Forget, like, public pressure. Why there isn't more of a drive within the department to try to address this? Well, like, I can tell you I've been arguing this. Like, I've been arguing this with them for, for months. I've been presenting about this as an issue. Do they view it um, as a problem? They're they're looking into it. So well that gives me so much more confidence. I feel so much more <laughs> Oh man. So we'll predictions, see. um predictions for twenty twenty four. Predictions for twenty twenty four. Court cases, no court cases. You you had Oh, I had Mason as Mason. my favorite. I don't know if I have a single least favorite decision overall delays i think um is my i'm going to group them all together that the, just the incredible delays in the federal court uh is my overall least favorite thing because it's it's just trickling um it's just really impacting the effectiveness of judicial review as a remedy and it's the only remedy like in the Immigration Refugee Protection Act for, I mean, you can always reapply or seek reconsideration, but it's often the only effective, meaningful remedy. I think there I'm going to a... say for least favorite, Obaz and Wham, that's another one of Erica's, or Obaz, I think it's they're calling it. Um, I'm sure I'm massacring the name. It's a federal court of appeal decision, and I'm sure we will, I think it's going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. I know that they're just filing... I think they're still in the leave stage there, but uh, um, hopefully we'll uh, have more joy. Um, uh, I think it's Molly case actually, but anyways, uh, it's again about Section 44 reports and discretion of officers to not refer things and all of this sort of thing. But it's it's just about for me, it's about the eroding ability of people to appeal decisions and to have them reconsidered on substantive humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And I feel like there's too much of these things where like these are um, refugee claimants who have come to Canada and then they have become subject to criminal allegations and or um, organized criminality, stuff like this. And so I might not be getting even the facts precisely correct, but it's just sort of the idea this is something that has been kind of coming up a lot in cases for me. Like, at what point do we recognize that this is homegrown crime? Or that, you know, regardless, that we have accepted the whole human to Canada and that at some point it's not like you can say, okay, we're done with you now. And in spite of the fact that, uh, you know, that these things have, have occurred, 
we're now going to send you back to wherever, even though um, it might go against our promises under the, the convention, refu the refugee convention, our international obligations, or the fact that you have family here, children who are relying on you against the best interest. Like I feel like Canada loves to pat itself on the back for our great humanitarian uh, traditions, but then uh, when somebody gets onto the bad list, we're like, and goodbye. <laughs> not in Canada's best interest anymore. And so I feel like this case brings a lot of that to light. So least favorite for federal court of appeals approach? The, favor, yeah. the federal court of appeal um, did not find in favor and they yeah. said, no, it was perfectly reasonable for them to um, to to refer the or crim and for the officer not to exercise any discretion and for um, him to be excluded. So. Um, which is not actually surprising based on the way things are going there. Yeah. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There was an interesting um, Ontario Court of Appeal decision, which was um, upholding the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal. Did you guys see this one? This is an old case, but the Court oh, of the Appeal decision was this permit one. guy. Yeah, Imperial yeah. Oil, and oh, that yeah. they said that they had discriminated. He had been discriminated against on the ground of citizenship because he was not. Yeah, well, the job offer was rescinded um, because he was not a citizen or a permanent resident. I think it's super interesting because of that, because of LMIAs, because of how we have to answer the questions in the LMIAs and how like employers are asked how many Canadians applied, how many yeah. PRs applied. But it's I like you're, you're not allowed to ask. I know. <laughs> it's contrary to human rights law to ask. I know. Um, I liked in that decision, too, how they had like the um, the company had the hypothetical of. Well, if it's discriminatory to not hire the postgraduate work permit holder, what about like the, you know, software engineer from Buffalo who wants a job and the court of appeal was like, well, it's not guaranteed that they'd get a work permit. And you're like, well, it actually might be like easier for them to get a work permit and qualify for PR than the postgraduate work permit holder. Like, so it does open some interesting uh, can of worms. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I thought that one was interesting. And then I looked at this. I was looking because of because of the announcement yesterday about increasing for students the 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 amount of funds they have to have and now it's going to be like 75% of the LICO and that's doubling what the amount was before like 20,000 starting January 1st. I think we're going to see a lot more 
uh, fraud, a lot like in terms of like claims of, of misrep in terms of bank accounts and credit cards. And there was a case last year where PR was refused because they found she didn't declare her work experience because they found that the credit card, her credit card had been used to pay for a whole bunch of study permits. And then they Ooh, said you were an educational consultant and you didn't declare that on your application. So oh it was like goodness. so far removed misrep uh, from her actual application. But it was super interesting because they're looking at the credit cards and they're looking at like the financial statements and they're looking at this on the back end. I think that's something super important for, for applicants to to be tuned into if they're they're thinking about how they're going to be proving their funds. Yeah, I don't know what percent of um, people would be excluded now from like. I don't know what percent of people who are studying in Canada wouldn't meet the new proof of funds requirement. Well, the, the reporters yesterday when they were grilling um, uh, Mr. Miller, they were saying like, but now all these people aren't going to be able to come because they're not going to be able to prove they can afford it. And like, well, no, and they can't afford it. And now they're here and they're homeless because they can't afford it. And because we told them they could pay $700 a month and find a place to live, except that that place doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. It's true. But at the same time, it's more about, I mean, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I think that it's also that there was an assumption, in my view, that they would also be able to earn money once they're in Canada. Yeah. So that's what that was giving um, space for, was that they were going to get an off-campus work privileges and so they would be able to earn the same as everybody else there but um what i'm also concerned about is how are they going to prove their income in their country of origin so like it's not like they're going to have a notice of assessment it's going to be lots of allegations about this is not a credible proof of your funds and so it will again privilege people from more westernized democracies where you have tax documents it's going to really disadvantage those where people just on, on in general avoid paying taxes, you know, and yeah. so I mean, it is weird that the cost like is so disconnected, like the cost of to show that you could afford to live in Canada at like 10,000 a year. That's not yeah, going to go far at all. And like, that's for sure. Yeah. But if you are going to be working and you have already paid your tuition, then it's to be factoring in the income no have. but only first year and like ubc i was looking at like first year tuition for like one of the science degrees is fifty-seven thousand. that's just yeah. the tuition for one yeah. year so like how do you like okay so are you going to earn fifty-seven thousand working your 20 hours a week plus no. you have to pay for food like no, but you have to provide proof that you have tuition plus that. yeah but for just for that first year, the first year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no but i do think that like these costs should like in theory, go up every year. Like it, it hasn't, I mean, there's the same thing. They're doing consultations right now on increasing the uh, amount that people have to pay to come back to Canada if they didn't pay for their removal order. And it's going from like, for an un, for an escorted removal is going from 1,500 to 13,000 plus 1,450 if you were like detained. And on the one hand, you're like, okay, that's a huge increase, like huge. On the other hand, it's, it is odd that like that fee hasn't increased in forever and also probably doesn't bear any resemblance to what it costs to remove. So like 1500 for a plane ticket from Vancouver to wherever they're being removed, plus the cost of the CBA. Like it's, um, although like years logic. ago, I like years ago, I helped somebody who 
who was voluntarily leaving and wanted to pay for their own ticket and CBSA said no and like you will have to pay for the arc to come back and it, like it would have been way cheaper for them to buy a ticket than to have to pay what will now eventually be like twelve thousand yeah. dollars or thirteen thousand dollars i wonder if it back. could be like challengeable then if it's going from like hey if i'll go buy my own for a thousand versus no no you're gonna have to pay us 13 grand later as I understand it, part of the issue is that they're, when they're, it depends on the reasons for removal, that there are certain, like they have to make arrangements with the receiving country. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you can't just like pick any charter flight, you know, there can only be a certain number of um, removals on a specific flight and all of that sort of thing. But again, I mean, it, it, like if they just got on a plane and left. <laughs> then removal would have been executed, you know. So um, this is this is Canada's problem and not the not the person concerned. I'd love if they got rid of the certificate of departure, mm. like, and if it's just okay, there's a plane ticket, or like we track exits, you know. It should it, anyway. Know. That's very niche. That's very a niche complaint. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, in terms of predictions for 2024, I feel very confident about my predictions. For There'll be something? No, there's no something. <laughs> I'm very specific and confident, which is that this is, he's making fun of me last year. I said, something is going to happen, and he made me get more specific. <laughs> this year, I am very confident that there is going to be a proliferation of, of new cases around um Section 37, Section 35, there's less of organized criminality, there's lots of allegations of human rights and terrorism related. I mean, there's always been some of that, but I feel like um, I think there's going to be a real uptick of those kinds of allegations um, in the years coming. Yeah, my prediction related to that is they'll, some of these Chinese background checks are going to lead to refusals and we'll finally learn what it is that they're looking for. Yeah, I think it's going to be some very interesting and quite convoluted litigation because there's going to be a lot of efforts made to not disclose a complete record. Um, and so it's going to yeah. lead to some very interesting challenges. Well, I have a case right now where if someone is inadmissible due to classified reasons, you have 30 days to respond. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so much for procedural fairness. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously going to go to federal court and then a section 87 motion. But what about um, India? Do you think that the current diplomatic strain is going to impact things in 2024? I don't think so. But like the biggest problem is the inability to send the passports out of India. Like, I think that's the biggest problem because now they've opened up the center in the Philippines. They've opened up the center in Romania. So like they have the room, the capacity to to move a lot of the Indian applications around um yeah. but the big problem is the is the trv in the passport the stamp in the passport and like under indian law you're not allowed to mail the passport out of the country yeah so that's be like what happens in iran where people like physically travel to turkey and bring their passport with them and you know and then or hire people to be that personal delivery person i mean that's what's been going on in in iran for quite some time but do you foresee any like enhanced security background checks, the same thing going on with China now happening with India because of the um, like the alleged assassination that the government uh, like, did? 
I think it I think it would be retaliatory to do that. And I don't think I don't think it's in Canada's best interest to yeah. do that. What so distinguishes I, India from what's going on in China? In terms of like the Canadian government's scrutiny. I think the the feeling is that the the Chinese government stuff uh, it trickles down into people so like there are people acting as secret police um so i think there's a lot more fear that you know there are people acting as spies and there are people doing this stuff whereas mm -hmm. the i think that the indian stuff it's 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 just at the political level like i, I don't think there can be like a slew of assassins as, like yeah. maybe there are i don't like i don't know but like how many assassins do you do you need i don't know I think that there's just, and this may be, this is just my own kind of gut talking. I don't think that there's the sense, and I think that this might be totally incorrect, but I don't think that there's the sense of India's presence as like the sophistication of that infrastructure, of the technical prowess, of the know-how, of the infiltration. I don't think that that exists. Rightly or wrongly, I don't think that Canada has the same impression of India as it does of China. Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, I wouldn't have predicted on my bingo card these whole like strain uh, emerging in 2023. Like that, that was something that came completely no, out of left field. Totally me too. Totally me too. Do you think uh, any other left field or new programs? Well, innovation stream, <laughs> municipal nominee program, <laughs> expanded ETA. Um, actually, yeah. I like. I think we could revise almost all the twenty-three predictions and just toss them to twenty uh, <laughs> twenty-four. Like, I'm going to throw out there digital PR card and digital PR TD, and if dreamer. I dare to dream, digital TRV. I think that one's less likely, but I think we're we're moving towards um, digital cards. Uh, Euro uh, the European Union is moving towards it. I think we're moving towards it. I don't know if we're going to see it in twenty twenty-four, but I'd like. We're getting, I think we're, we're miles there. away. I think we're miles mm. away, personally. I, I think we're yeah, getting there. I, I hope I I'm do. wrong, but that's just my guess. That is a good one, though, for the long shot uh, prediction. Yeah. I'm going to give you my wish, but I don't think it's actually going to happen. My wish um, is that the federal court will do something more innovative. Oh, no, shit. I just said something. I can't do that. <laughs> I would, um, okay, so what I want them to do is have a much more um, sophisticated apparatus for client, like for settlement of matters, not just leaving it to the parties, not just signing a piece of paper to say I have contemplated settlement, but an actual process. The one that they have done now with making the CTR part something that needs to be prepared and put forward as a way of further delaying the whole proceeding. I hate it with every fiber of my being, um, but I wish that there was an actual moment where the two parties needed to um, needed to participate in some case conference. Um, I think that that should be a mandatory yeah. component of it, something like that, because I, I understand DOJ is incredibly backlogged. I know that most of the time um, with um, with practitioners, especially ones that have been doing this for a while, that there is conversations that exist, but I feel like um, 
a lot of these cases should never be going on for as long as they as they have they are Do, they need to resource the litigation case management department more this this is my ignorance because i don't litigate but like do they have special masters and then the ability to say you know like we're putting jrs of all these study permit ma applications that are claiming Chinook and under one special master, like, are, do they have the capacity to do that or they don't have, that's not no. a capacity, like they can't do no. that. It's all on applicants council to figure out if they want to seek case management, how they would do that. Everyone's trying to figure out how to do that because this is like a whole new way of doing things that never existed uh, two years ago. I mean, maybe it did because the like a few people that, you know, were really being super, super innovative, but um but yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a really um, yeah, it's it's a brave new world in the litigation field for for immigration. I think that what I'd like to see is I'd like to see actually on top of that the ability for if both parties agree to waive a hearing, that matters can be decided just in writing at leave. Mm -hmm. Um. But I also don't like the federal court. I don't like, I don't think they've had the budgetary increase to deal with the increased caseload from IRCC. And I don't, I think the federal court views the increase in volumes as a problem. I don't know that IRCC views it as a problem. Um, mm. Right? Like, I don't know why they actually would view it. That slow JRs, if anything, disincentivizes people to file JRs. So I don't like, I'm not sure that there's the the political or budgetary like will to, I don't know if they view it as a problem outside of the federal court, which I'm sure does. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying, I think it should be an, a full appeal and not a judicial review to begin with, um, but um, that is never gonna happen. But at the same time, um, at the very least on a judicial review, there should be a case management meeting or an alternative dispute resolution option because this whole thing of the paper pleadings and da 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 it just is not serving the interest of justice as it stands right now. Yeah. As far as any other long shot predictions, I'm trying to think of something that would tie housing. Um, I mean, we're ending 2023 with Mark Miller firing warning shots at the provinces as far as regulation of schools. I. I think that will directly be tied into housing. I like. I think. I think his words yesterday, his "we're coming after you" and provinces, you are forewarned. Do something, or or we are. I think it's going to be if the if the schools can't guarantee the housing, then they're gonna they're gonna limit the number of study permits. Like it is like nine hundred thousand study permits when there are schools literally called like ABC College, um, you know, yeah. in the strip mall with one room. Uh, questionable. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, this is very, um, this is what Richard Curlin was saying. Uh, he spoke and, at a conference I was at yesterday, and he was like, that quotas for schools would be directly linked to what their housing situations were, and that, like, the better, and he also, um, hopefully he won't mind, I, I don't think he will, but I'm quoting him here, but um, that also like whatever like that that schools have their own ranking you know that the more you the worse you do with students staying in status completing the program 
that the greater your allocation of study permits will be for the subsequent year. Well, that's that's their whole trusted institution framework model that yes, they're they're planning exactly. on bringing in. But like, which is I such remember... an interesting thing because it's like, well, if you're not going to a trusted school, you can still get a study permit. It might just be slower, and you'll be further disadvantaged. Like, it's the incentives seem a bit. I don't know. Like, he made it sound like they're going to be cracking down on the number of permits. Like, you may not be able to get a permit for those schools. Mm. Um, And then I think, I think if those schools should not be getting post grad work permits, like, I don't think it should be up to the schools to like determine which programs are eligible for post grad. Like, there's, there's so many issues between like the the provinces being able to determine which schools, and then like the schools being able to determine the programs and the schools determine what's full time. Like there's, there's too much, it would be very rare for me to say there's too much that's unregulated, but with this, I think there's just, it's, it's too much that's decentralized. Yeah. And there's a lack of understanding. And I, I literally watched a video earlier this week from a school, like, explaining to students you know what they can expect when they come to Canada and the the video from the school says $700 a month in rent like there there has to be a tightening like schools have to be held to account for this but the provinces who who get money from the schools and who benefit from all this the provinces also have to be held to account yeah and and it's also it's not even always that the schools are wrongdoing many of them like are consulting with lawyers because it's hard for them to know what the immigration requirements are too. And so for them to be advising students like, okay, this is what's going to be required. Um, It's not like the requirements are straightforward where they're like, okay, and this is what the options are. This is how we can market to the international crowd uh, because the rules are so incredibly convoluted right now um, that it does call for more centralization. I agree with you. And I think that that information that, Steve, I was looking for it the other day that you tweeted, um, but I couldn't find it, uh, about what percentage schools were paying of the tuition um, to educational consultants. That should be public. And students should have to, like, the students should have to sign it. Like, the way a lawyer Mm -hmm. needs to disclose to the client if there's any kind of referral fee, the consultant should have to disclose that to the student. And it should be very clear what they're getting when they're pushing a specific school to the student. I'm surprised they don't have to under the new, because are they RCICs or their educational consultants are different and not covered by the code? It's its own thing, the educational agents or consultants. I don't know too much about it. Yeah, I was just learning about the new code of conduct for RCICs and it's very specific. And so um, there should be something. And, and I think the minister had a lot, had a significant role in framing that code of conduct. But if educational consultants are also now authorized to, um, pro- to, to provide that type of service, they too should be rolled in under that. Or something similar. My other two predictions, postgraduate work permits go to five years. Um, and this isn't so much a prediction because like it's listed as something that's going to happen in 2024, but they'll release the regulations for administrative monetary penalties for, oh, here's my prediction. They're going to list the regulations for administrative monetary penalties for consultants 
And there's initially going to be a lot of confusion because the regulations won't be clear as to whether it includes lawyers. And it's going to lead to a huge brouhaha. Yeah. Yeah. I have a specific question. Do you guys foresee a new act and regulations in the new year? No. Not in the new year. I do foresee it but not in the new year. You mean like an amendment to the ERPA or a whole new act? A whole new act. Oh, no. Like that's not a year project, but they're like, they say they're examining everything. And I think everything does need to, like so much of the act makes no sense. Like things are poorly written. Things were based on, you know, how things were a decade. Like it just doesn't make sense anymore. It makes sense to tackle it, but it's a huge project. I don't see it happening in in a year and and the idea of it changing at least we know what's in it right now like mm-hmm. the idea of it changing to something else where they they throw in all these weird things like at the time of decision made instead of at the yeah. time of application like oh that terrifies me i also yeah. don't know what it would look like in the current environment where there's concerns about high immigration levels and international student levels what a new act i know would look like if it were but i think that there's um I mean, I think that like, will this government last through 2024 is also like, I just think there's too much going on uh, for them to put their mind to something that comprehensive. Yeah, Um, I just didn't, I wasn't, I don't think any of us, no, none of us were practicing under the Immigration Act. And so I don't know how much people knew about the fact that new legislation was being worked on before it got introduced. Yeah. It, um, I don't know if that's a good question. Okay, Something new parent or grandparent pool next year. What do you think? Um, oh, good one. I'm going with no. I'm going with no, but there'll be I a have new to go round with of yes. invitations I, in November, December of last year. I think um, we're done. I think we're done with parents and grandparents. Do you mean in I terms of like, like new invitations or new... Uh, new people no, getting to invite a new a new expression of interest no i don't think there'll be a new expression of interest you think there's something to draw off this one no. yeah in like november to december the same kind of the same thing they did this year and i think it's politically like feasible they'll be like oh look at these poor people who've been in there so long like that's insane i have to like hope and dream that it reopens because it's just it's it stinks. It stinks that they're still relying on this one from three years ago. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost at the point of hilarity as opposed to like, yeah. When I try and explain it to clients, they're like, they did what? And what? When I start the history and then you stood in line and if you were the first in line, you could. No, and then exactly. it was a lottery and then it closed in nine minutes. And then yeah, like, Exactly. Exactly. And oh, anyway, I thought that the best thing we did on our year in review last year was our analogy to the restaurant. <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. About how like you go in and like there's no menu. So you have to ask other people what they ate. And then like, did you order that in 2019 or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this year, the uh, the only addition would be that certain menu items are restricted to those who have basic competency in French. Uh, no, I think the other thing would be like, oh, you ordered that in 2019? Are you a terrorist? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. can I add two things that I hated 
just yeah. like I hate so much. Right. I hate the student uh, being able to work more than uh, 20 hours a week. We I, I hate that last year too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the anger, the anger grows, especially because they just made it even more confusing yesterday. Yeah. They just added to the confusion. Okay, the I want to add to that. that visitors, when... visitors applying in Canada for work permits. You like it or you I don't hate, like it? Oh, I hate that. I what? The, the miss, like the potential for misrep. You say you're coming to Canada as a visitor oh. and then you're here and now you're applying for yeah. a work permit. Then you're going to flagpole. So you're going to get cited for misrep by CBSA. But if you don't, then you're applying in Canada and you're increasing the already insane in Canada work permit extension processing times. Okay. So it's not so much that you hate the relief valve. You hate no. the fallout from the way that they've done it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I'm with you on both of those things. But the other thing that I hate is how you have 180 days to apply for your post-graduation work permit. However, if you wait more than 90 days, you've lost status as a student. <laughs> and you had to read our website really carefully to know that because there was an expiry date on your work permit, but it's pretend. Like it's that pretend. 120 days we put on that letter about when your maintained status expires. We you like pretend dates. Like... What do those things mean? What do those mean? Actually, when I went to my undergrad, when I, I did my undergraduate at a university called Trent in Ontario, right? Um and there was a very wonderful article where they walked around the university campus and they took photographs of bizarre parts of the architecture and they would take a photograph and they would say, what the fuck is this? If you know, please write to the Arthur. So that's how I feel about Canadian immigration policy. I wanna take photographs of very specific sections and say that about them and then try and just like, so I wanna take a photograph of that section where it says, <laughs> I feel like we operate in such as like this niche area. Like my, my spouse is a, is a lawyer as well. And I feel like I spend so much time saying I'm really angry. Okay. Let me give you a 20 minute history lesson. And then I will explain. I why. <laughs> yeah. It's going to take, okay. You ready for some Kafka? Here you go. It's like, there's the courthouse. Here are the stairs. <laughs> Honestly, you have to listen to our last podcast, which is how do we deal with the rage? <laughs> Yeah. My other dark horse <laughs> prediction, they get rid of uh, significant regulatory amendments to make it so that you can no longer flagpole if you don't have a U.S. visa. Or if you're even if you have what? a U.S. visa, if you're not, uh, um, they will amend it so that if you are visa requiring and you travel to the United States and come back, that you can't apply for a work permit. So my... I don't think they're going to get rid of it. I'll tell you why. Okay. Wait, IRCC doesn't care. Only CBSA cares. Yeah. Yeah, but I think they'll still like. Um, I think that I, the the push will I, be there. That's my I dark think, horse. Like I think CBSA negative. has fought this for so long. CBSA hates this so much, but IRCC says, "You're not. <laughs> you're not our problem. We don't care." So wait, you're saying though, Steve, that like you go to the United States. Tell me uh, again. So it'll basically, they're going to remove, Mike, this would just be my, uh, that CBSA will win this fight um, just because of like ministerial strong arming that, you know, there's that rule that if you're from China or India and you generally need a visa, but you go to the United States and come back, 
that you can apply for a work permit because you're TRB exempt. It's like the intersection of 198 and I can't remember the other section. There was a CBSA yeah. memo from 1997 that everybody, or 1999, that everybody relies on. Yeah. But don't and you need to have a U.S. visa in order to do No, that? they still let you do it if you were to, I mean, oh, that's a whole okay. separate thing that like that. is a bit okay. gray to me, but um, I think that they'll because amend the regs get, to get rid of The it. Americans can refuse you entrance and then you just loop around, but you've technically left Canada and you're coming back in. I don't ever do that. No, yeah. I'd so never I think that they're gonna. That. I think they are going to change that. But again, it's never actually been authorized by the regulations. It's just it, by some policy bulletin. Well, no, but it's it an is, interpretation of the regulations. It's how the regulations interplay. It's how two sections of the the regulations interplay with one another. Okay. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't. I don't like it either. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think uh, we've canvassed the year in review. It'll be interesting to see if a year from now uh, or going into 2025 is a bit more positive. Might be completely election dominated by that point if they don't have yeah. one in 2024. Um, oh, the one last prediction, the Islamic Revolutionary, the, what is it? The IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Are they designated or not? They're under never ending political pressure to designate them either as a terrorist organization or another one of those human rights violators. Uh, the Liberal government has been resisting, saying it would capture a lot of people who were conscripted into it and possibly be like the biggest inadmissibility swath ever. Um, conservatives are really pushing for it. No idea what the NDP or the Bloc are saying. What uh, do you think it happens in 2024? No? No. I think there are other fish that other fish in the fire. That's not, that's not the expression, but whatever there, they don't, this is not an important, this is not an important, there's a lot, there's other stuff going on. Yeah. I think, um, I think that they would, I, I think they're going to continue making more allegations and do it without designation. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Or just sanction them, get it indirectly that way. Anyway, thanks for coming on. We will see uh, if we don't have you earlier in 2024. Uh, it's it was it's really interesting to go back and listen to these each year. Like it was, that was. Funny. I feel like we were so innocent, like at in the end of 2022, and so hopeless, like coming out of COVID, so happy, and now we're and then the year was like, huh. It's almost painful to listen to. I like. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, don't you feel like um, somebody just reminded me of that that period at the beginning of the pandemic when you're like, well, maybe we'll start being more environmentally friendly and maybe we'll start <laughs> commuting, you know, there was this like Valhalla moment. And then all of a sudden we're like, no, 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 we're still going to be apples. That's just the yeah. world. Yeah. It's funny. That's a good comparison. Yeah. For good analogy. All right, folks. Yeah. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.